Hi, happy Father's Day. Good morning, and I'm Elizabeth. This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So you can follow along in your Bible or um, up on the screens. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Uh, really excited to be in one space together, uh, worshiping. This feels really good. It feels uh, like one church, and you get to see each other. Happy to be here. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be starting chapter 5. This marks the end of uh, 1 Peter. Next week will be the end, uh, but chapter 5 is the end. And today, uh, what I want us to do uh, is to focus on the role of elders, that's the word that Peter uses, and it literally just means older people, Uh, the role of elders as authority figures in our personal lives and in our society. Uh, What I do when I'm preparing for a sermon is, of course, I'm studying the text and I'm studying uh, related topics and reading and uh, pondering and all of that, Uh, but Another thing that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find a place where I emotionally connect with the passage. And uh, this week, it wasn't hard to do that. Uh, Sort of the two themes this week that hovered over me and uh, started uh, bubbling in my heart. Uh, One was the violence that took place in South Carolina, and the other was uh, the role that uh, fathers and elders have in, uh, in my life and uh, in, our, in my society, in, the, in my world. And uh, I, did, I had no problems finding things that I felt this week. Another uh, factor that added to my sort of uh, emotional week was that I'm doing my little baby sister's wedding uh, on Saturday. And uh, the way I do weddings is I get family members to write letters to uh, a couple getting married. So if you have a brother or a sister or a daughter or a son, you write letters to them. And then I uh, scrunch these letters up and I put it together, uh, stitch it together as part of my, what they call a homily, which is a sort of a short sermon for weddings. Believe it or not, I can do those really well, the short kind. (laughs) 
And uh, so I, I've been getting these letters from family members, and I had to write one myself. And my sister is 14 years younger than me, and so I was sort of a pseudo-father to her. And so I felt all these sort of elder emotions coming up as I uh, journeyed through our life together. And the times that uh, I was her hero, and the times I broke her heart, like when I left for college, and then when I came back... I had to win her over again, and then I'd leave again, and then win her over again, and, and those kind of memories. But the really uh, sort of that got me in the feels this week was reading letters from the parents, especially the dads. And so uh, as way of introduction, I want to read you the, uh, it's a shorter edited version of my father's letter to uh, uh, my sister. Her name is Nami. And this is translated from the Korean, so some things are lost in translation. I, also, I think some things are gained as well. Dad to Nami. Nami, I am waiting for my turn at the doctor's office. My body has been showing weaknesses these days without even my knowing, so I am at times adding to the doctor's savings account. <laughs> One thought leads to another. In your application essay to Harvard, You wrote something about your mom and dad planting baby trees in our garden when you were a little girl. How those baby trees grew into fruit and flowering trees before we knew it. And they began to provide delicious fruit and beautiful fragrance to our family. And in the same way, you wrote that you grew up and were on your way to college. That you were leaving your parents to make your own way in this world. I stayed at my desk reading your essay and looking out at the garden and cried by myself for a long time. I felt the pain of having a nest that was empty of the little birds that had just hatched out of their eggs. I also remember the three lies you told me that I wanted to believe. One, you told me that you would not get married and that you would live with your mom and dad forever. (laughs) You said this after your older sister, Megan, got married. Two, that you would get married after you turned 30. You said this after your brother Peter got married. Three, that you would live with mom and dad after you were married. You said this after your older sister and me got married. Our prayer is that by the grace of God, we would live together forever through faith in Christ with our children who have left the nest, our children who had to leave the nest. Love that. <clears throat> Let me tell you where we're going to go today. A study of elders uh, in our world, uh, in history, and in our lives, in our uh, culture today, it's really a study of the role that God wants power to play in our lives. Patriarchy, uh, elders, the male role has really been uh, weaved together with power in our world. And so whenever we're dealing with power, we're dealing with fire. And so there's a deep appreciation uh, for the role of elders in our lives. Yes, of course. There's also this bittersweet acknowledgement that uh, playing with fire, it's dangerous. And there, there has to be some other way to think about the role of elders, and where we're going to go is that God, he is truly the only elder, that we, all of us, are just mere children, 
And underneath every father we've loved and longed for, every elder we have looked to, we really are looking for something beyond them. We're looking for God the Father, God the great shepherd and elder. And so that's where we're going to head today. And I have two points for us. One, longing for shepherds. And two, the shepherd's longing. Start with longing for shepherds in verse 4. Verse 4 says, and when the chief shepherd appears. And so you think this is just an instruction that Peter is giving to the elders of the scattered churches that were under persecution. Uh, But really, Peter is talking about Jesus Christ himself. Every shepherd we've ever had, every elder, every authority figure, every person in power, every single person who would fit into this category at their shining best are just arrows pointing to the chief shepherd who is yet to come. I don't know if you're into politics. I don't know if you... uh, have a deep appreciation for uh, the authority figures in your life like dad and mom and teachers and leaders and pastors and uh, your bosses and managers and older siblings. I think with it at the center of that love, at the center of what opens you up to that authority figure really is a longing for God himself. Uh, one of the themes in the book of First Peter is this theme of suffering because the church was experiencing a great deal of suffering. And what Peter teaches in his letter is that in the presence of suffering, what gets exposed through the fire of suffering is our desire for love and for justice and for righteousness to rule because we feel uh, like we are being injustice when we suffer. And our response, our typical and natural and normal response to that is to play the judge ourselves, to become vindictive, or to feel like if I don't don't realize my dreams for myself, if I don't take a hold of my desires and longings, uh, nobody else will do it. So I have to do whatever it takes. And in Peter's letter, he calls these epithumias or over-desires. He calls it sin illegitimate ways of meeting very legitimate needs. And so when suffering is upon us, we fight that suffering any which way possible. And the implication, we started talking about this on Easter Sunday, uh, was that if you don't understand that there actually is a judge, there is a judge, there is a God, there is a final reckoning of all matters, If you don't believe this, then you have to reckon things yourself. And so you will open yourself up to over-desires or to illegitimate ways or or to even things uh, as explicit as violence. And then it gets compounded because every quote-unquote elder or authority figure or shepherd, this is the metaphor Peter uses in today's passage, that's ever been over us, They've all failed in some way, shape, or form. 
They were all sort of like hired hands who had conflicts of interest, who had limitations to their love and devotion. And so not only is there suffering, but those who are hired and positioned to help alleviate the suffering fail us in some ways. And those roles are often played by us. And suffering is compounded. And so we get to a point where we say, you know, I really want to meet the boss. I really want to meet the guy who is supposed to be in charge. I got to see this guy. And this guy, Peter names as the chief shepherd. And he says he's going to appear one day. But I want you to think about this philosophical rationale. If you don't believe that this chief shepherd exists and that he is going to make an appearance, what must you do? Uh, I was looking into this a little bit, and I came across uh, this author. He's co-authoring a new book that's coming out. His name is Taj Rai, and he penned an article that's worth uh, your Google effort called How Could They? And here he introduces all of the research they've been doing uh, into the uh, theories, into the theory of violence. He's out of Northwestern University uh, in Chicagoland. And uh, he works, uh, he's worked with a renowned anthropologist called, named Alan Fisk. Some of you know Alan Fisk. And he says this. It's a little quote from that article. It looks like both leading theories of violence fail, the current theories that we have today. For one reason or another, neither the disinhibition this theory nor the rational theory provides a complete picture for why people hurt one another. What are we missing? We analyzed violent practices across cultures and history. We examined records of war, torture, genocide, honor killing, animal and human sacrifice, homicide, suicide, intimate partner violence, rape, corporal punishment, execution, trial by combat, police brutality, hazing, castration, dueling, feuding, contact sports, and the violence immortalized by gods and heroes and more. Basically, he's covered the basis. We comb through first-person accounts, ethnographic observations, historical analyses, demographic data, and experimental investigations of violence. The work was depressing. We did, in fact, find a pattern in all the violence. There was a unifying theme with all the predictive and explanatory power one could wish for. Across practices, across cultures, and throughout historical periods, when people support and engage in violence, their primary motivations are moral. By moral, I mean that people are violent because they feel they must be, because they feel that their violence is obligatory. They know that they are harming fully human beings. Nonetheless, they believe they should. Violence does not stem from a psychopathic lack of morality. Quite the reverse. It comes from the existence of perceived moral rights and obligations. The reason for the pattern of violence is an ancient longing and aching we have weaved into the very fibers of who we are for morality. 
We've talked about sin as an illegitimate way of meeting legitimate needs, especially under the uh, weight of suffering, we might respond with violence. But what Taj has discovered here, along with Alan Fisk, is that violence itself is an illegitimate means of meeting the very legitimate need for the appearing of the chief shepherd and the establishing of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We have a lot of perversions, a lot of illegitimate ways that we express very ancient but legitimate longings. Because all of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, are made in the very image of God. And you and I, we are children of God. And a long, long, long time ago, we were loved, we were cherished. We were protected. We were sheltered. We were adored. And we, my friends, are meant for that love, for that world. I don't know if you believe that. I don't know if you know that you have a God who loves you and cares for you and has been working throughout history to somehow win you back to himself, back to his fold, back to his kingdom. But you have a great shepherd who cares deeply for you. And I think history has proven, current events are showing us to the last minute that we are not capable of loving ourselves very well. That all of us, no matter how many authority figures, no matter how many elders we set up in society, bake it into the structure of human society, every single one fails again and again and again. And so we find ourselves longing for not just shepherds in our life, but for the chief shepherd to appear. This really is also a rational, philosophical invitation for those of you who are not believers who don't believe that maybe you're sitting here and you're an atheist. Where will you turn? Who is the shepherd you can count on? Who is going to be the next hero in your life that's going to let you down? Violence is a true epithumia, a, a strong desire gone awry within human nature and human society. And I really do believe even underneath something so graphic like violence is an insatiable longing for Jesus Christ himself, his glory, and his appearing when he comes and he's able to wipe every tear away. And I'm reminded this week as I think about South Carolina, as I think about Father's Day, that all of us, we belong to God. We are his children, orphaned as we might be. Parents and grandparents, teachers, students, leaders, followers, the rich, the poor. We all belong to God. Chief shepherd, this great phrase appears only once in the whole Bible. Right here. 
right here, but it's actually a very common metaphor, the idea of shepherd. I want to read you some verses uh, that describe this. The Lord is my shepherd. This is Psalm 23. I shall not want. Isaiah 40, 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, this is Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I look back at history. I look back at this just short history of my life. And I know I long for the good shepherd in my life. I need and desire very much so, very deeply, desire for the good shepherd to lay down his life, not because I'm making him or begging him, but because he loves me. And so he chooses to lay it down. He's not like a hired hand. He's not going to flee. There are no wolves that can get to me. I long for this shepherd in my life. Don't you find yourself longing for such a shepherd? Isn't there another hero that you've been looking for underneath every hero that you've had or every hero story you've read? You know, uh, a hard part about being an immigrant, which I am, uh, is the role reversal of the um, immigrant's life. Because, you know, uh, parents, adults come with their kids and they have a harder time, the parents do, enculturating and speaking the language and understanding how to navigate. And children, they learn the language much quicker and sooner. So the role gets reversed. And uh, many, in many different ways, the, the child becomes uh, the parent. And it's a, it's a really uh, sad loss there because in some ways, immigrant children lose their parents and they become Uh, the adults in the relationship. You know, and the sadness there is that you lose some semblance of a shepherd that you so long for. It's sad when parentification like that happens. All of us so deeply, helplessly longing for God's presence, his love, his authority in our lives. Now, the shepherd himself also has a longing. Let's look at verse 2. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, God's longing is to return to us in due time. In the fullness of time, God will return. But until that time, the way that God conveys his presence in our world is through elders. 
There's a couple of things that describe uh, what elders are supposed to look like as a way to help reflect uh, the chief shepherd. Uh, verse 2 describes it, says, the elder, an, an elder that reflects God's shepherding heart, exercises oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. You know what this means is that when you are an elder the way God intends you to be an elder, you understand that the eldership, the serving that you do, it's a choice that you make. And it's a privilege and an honor. And it doesn't put the people that are under you in your debt. You're not doing them a favor because you don't have to do this. This is an honor to do this. Therefore, you're not feeling like they owe you something. Now, this is a really important truth that I experienced uh, in my growing up, growing up as a pastor. There, were, there was a season when I acutely felt like I was God's servant, and I was serving these people, and therefore these people owed me stuff. That was me serving under compulsion rather than willingly. And I didn't know this, but psychologically, I had put everybody else in my debt. That's not the way elders are supposed to be. Uh, verse 2, again, says uh, an elder who is reflecting God's image uh, does not practice his eldership uh, for shameful gain, but eagerly. You know what that means? Saying it, the, the easier human nature thing to do is to experience a conflict of interest. It means that you're desiring your good, what's gained for you, over and against what's good and consider gain for the one you're supposed to be serving. And so an elder who is not pursuing shameful gain but Eagerly, what that means is that they are pursuing the other's good and not just their own. And then we have in verse 3, not domineering, but being examples. What this means is that you're not saying, do as I say, not as I do. You're not trying to control people with the power of your word but you're demonstrating with your life. Okay, that's verse 3. And then in verse 5, with humility towards one another. This word, uh, with humility, it's one word, and it literally means low to the ground. When something is humble, it's low to the ground. I love that picture. And this is a really... Interesting thing that Peter is writing to this church because there were many bad shepherds in Peter's time, many bad elders. In fact, much of the suffering that this uh, church, the church of Christ at this time, they were experiencing was a direct result of bad leaders, government officials, chief among them, Nero. And in that context, Peter is writing Instruction for how to more accurately reflect the heart and mind of God. Um, 
you know, in one of the first uh, churches that I was planting, uh, we had our first membership class after about two years of being a church. And uh, each person was going around, and their uh, question to answer as part of their introduction was to share why they were at this church and why they wanted to become a member. And uh, I'll never forget this, and I think I have, may have shared this story once before, but it's, it's uh, the first one that came to my mind when I was thinking about bad elders uh, was... Uh, when it was this woman's turn, uh, she said, you know, I'm here at this church and I want to become a member because Pastor Peter is the best pastor ever. And I thought, oh no, I can only go downhill from here. (laughs) Because where can you go? I knew I would now disappoint her and I wanted to avoid her for the rest of her time at the church (laughs) so I can stay up high in her mind. I remember the time uh, when I was a first-time dad. I noticed that Emmy, my uh, oldest daughter, she loved being swung in the baby carrier. And so I thought, why? More is better. Why not? And I started swinging it really hard and so much so. And then I started having flashbacks to this ride at the amusement park we used to call the pirate ship where you just go up and down and you go as upside down as you can without falling out. And so I was doing that with Emmy's baby carrier, and uh, she threw up. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, no. First fail as a dad. Many more to come. Whenever we see instructions like this about how to be exactly like God, part of it is instruction. Part of it is showing us the target we should aim for. But partly how we hit the target the way God wants us to is not by saying, I'm going to do it, by saying, I'm going to be perfect, because really we are all going to fail. But it's finding a way to understand that this is not the instruction that Peter gives us in, chapter, in verses 2 and 3 and 5, it's not an instruction set that we are to keep perfectly, but really it's a description of who Jesus is. Uh, I came across this uh, Father's Day reflection uh, of a writer named Scott Brand. I want to read it to you, a section of it. And it's, it's, not, it's not crazy insightful, but it, just, it was profound in its simplicity. The most profound memories I have from my dad come from moments when he showed weakness. He taught me and my siblings what it looked like to confess sins by confessing sins to us. He admitted over and over again to us that he didn't know what he was doing. His fatherhood was not marked by the upward trajectory of becoming a better father based on commitment. Rather than being driven by a desire to be better than his absentee dad or to live up to a quote-unquote resolution, my father very vocally admitted that he would fail us and instead pointed us to our heavenly father who is perfect. As a family, we saw our dad consistently running to Jesus for his righteousness. In other words, he never seemed to be all that interested in declaring himself righteous through his parenting which is precisely what I suspect made and makes him such a great dad. He understands on some gut level that he is free from the law that tells him he will never be good enough or that his validation as a father comes from the success of his children. 
The proof is in the way he loves me now. I'm a 26-year-old without a consistent job, no bachelor's degree, who needs to borrow money from my parents to stay afloat. I drive a 1995 Camry. I'm a long way from giving him any grandkids. I'm not really someone he can brag to his friends about. Yet on a recent phone call, he told me something that defies the logic of our law-addicted hearts. It had nothing to do with my personal success or validation of him. He told me he was proud of me. I love my dad. I've come to the conclusion there's no elder or father or mother or rule on earth that can do what only God can do. I believe in Jesus not because I'm perfect or I'm good at keeping Christian laws or sticking to Christian morality, but precisely because I can't. And I need, to, I need a way to solve that problem. And the solution isn't me trying harder, but it's learning how to fail into the arms of the chief shepherd. He alone is perfect. In this here life right now, mostly we're waiting for this guy to appear. We wait, we long, and we try. What are we trying? What are we trying to do? We are trying to point ourselves constantly to the chief shepherd. We are trying constantly to point each other to the chief shepherd. This trying, this way of learning how to fail, because we will, learning how to fail. This, we have themed in this sermon series, Faith, Hope, and Love. And this trying, while longing for his appearing, all of us together in the same basket, in the same boat, us all waiting for his appearing, but trying as we wait for his appearing, this Peter calls in verse 5, clothing ourselves with humility. He doesn't say followers, submit and clothe yourself with humility. He doesn't say leaders, clothe yourself with humility. He says all of you together, all of you, clothe yourself with humility. It's this deep knowing that I fail, you fail. All of us, we play these roles of mom and dad and elder and leader and follower. But really, all of us together understand that we're just waiting And we're pointing, we're hoping, we're believing, we're trying. And that's clothing ourselves with humility, keeping ourselves low to the ground. Application and conclusion. Um, The word father appears, uh, uh, the, the word father used of God, the father, appears 1,836 times in the Bible. Uh, The term mother used of God appears 334 times. So we can conclude that the metaphor of father, though every father is just a child, the metaphor of father is the primary elder in our world. Maybe history will change. Maybe there's another million years when mothers will become the primary metaphor. But as of today... Father is the primary elder in our world. And so we conclude that Father is God's primary way of shepherding us. It's just a historical fact. 
And because of this, every funeral invitation, every invitation to funeral, a funeral you've ever received, is an invitation to grieve two deaths and experience two new relationships. Let me explain what I mean. Every time a father dies, every time a dad dies, you have the first point of grieving. That's grieving the literal death of your father. Dad died, and it's sad, and it's devastating, and you grieve that. But there's an opportunity to grieve a second death. Okay, so first we have the death of a father, and then second we have the death of the ideal father, the dad you wish you had. And that really maybe is a bulk of the heartache. Now that physical dad is gone, your opportunity to experience the kind of dad you wish you had also is gone. And that really feels like a loss. And that cuts you to the quick. You understand? And you're reminded that really your earthly father was a stand-in for the chief shepherd. And so you grieve the death of your father, and then you grieve the death of your ideal father, and then there's two opportunities for a new relationship. First, now you have an opportunity, once you've grieved, to accept your actual father. Who was your father? What was he really like? If you took away your expectations and your needs and your hopes... Who was he? And you can have a relationship with this actual person even long after they're gone. And then a second invitation. You're invited to anticipate God the Father, the appearing of the chief shepherd, the one you have been longing for underneath all along. A father's job is to point to God the Father. It's not to be perfect. It's not to hold power and wield it perfectly. It's not to have authority and exercise it perfectly. But it's to point to God the Father. So I want to give you uh, three application points here. Uh, Number one... All of the children in this room and all of us are children. Understanding, recognizing that God alone is our chief shepherd. He is the father to every father that's ever been. I want to invite you to give you an opportunity to release your fathers. Your father is a child. And God loves him. And we release him. Release him of your expectations, of your hopes, recognizing that all of these ideals really are meant for God the Father. So that's application one. Release your fathers. Accept them as they actually are. Even as they live. Allow that ideal father to die so that you can experience a fresh new relationship with your actual father. Number two, application number two, fathers and leaders and elders, 
those of you who exercise authority in this room, I want to give you an opportunity to release yourself. To forgive yourself, to accept God's forgiveness of you, to, to see yourself the way God sees you, as one with needs and hopes and dreams, who try hard and sometimes don't try as hard as you should. God the Father forgives you. He loves you and he releases you. No matter what you've done, how you failed, maybe only you know. But release yourself. And then third application point, I want to give you a chance to acknowledge God as the Father you are always longing for. And this is the great shepherd's longing for us, that we long for him, that we wait for him. In conclusion, I'm going to read you uh, four passages uh, in the Bible where God describes himself as our Father. Isaiah 63, verse 16, For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from of old is your name. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Matthew 23, verse 9, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father, who is in heaven. And actually a fifth passage, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he, Jesus Christ, remains a priest perpetually. Would you pray with me? Father, on this Father's Day, uh, we are thankful and we celebrate the fathers and the elders in our life. We thank you for uh, the great people, but also this great metaphor that you have given to us of your love for us, of your protection and guardianship and provision for us. And somehow, even though um, it's hard to do, I want us to be able to uh, properly order the loves in our life, for us to understand that you alone are the great shepherd of our life. And dads and moms and leaders, they have a place too. But really, you, you tell us, you remind us today that we are all children. And so, Father, teach us how to release ourselves and to release each other into this proper God-ordained order. Dads, we thank you. Dads, we forgive you. And together, all of us, we wait for the appearing of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, Son of God. We long for your appearing. In Jesus' name, amen.